So the task of a late bloomer in whatever field that they are is to get off the conventional path and become an explorer and a discoverer. Because face it, you didn't excel on the conventional path. You fell behind. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, Rich Carlgaard is the publisher of Forbes magazine, but when he was younger, it wasn't at all obvious that he was going to be successful. During this episode of the podcast, he talks about growing up in North Dakota and developing an interest in running. He actually got into Stanford on a fluke when his coach misunderstood his race times and, in Rich's words, he squandered the opportunity. While his high-powered classmates were finishing law school and so on, he graduated with the minimum number of units and went to work as a dishwasher and then a security guard. His story of how he went from dead-end jobs to ultimately working at Forbes magazine and becoming its publisher is the catalyst behind his new book, Late Bloomers. Late Bloomers laments the culture of obsession with SAT scores and early achievement and explains that finding one's way later in life can be an advantage to long-term achievement and happiness. Rich and I also discuss how people shouldn't tie their self-doubt to their self-worth and how embracing self-doubt can actually be a great strategy. We also talk about how early achievers can reinvent themselves in the face of job insecurity as more and more jobs are automated and taken over by artificial intelligence. Rich also tells the story of how shame around being academically average led to a spat of depression and even suicide amongst Palo Alto students in 2014 and 15. And it was discovered that the kids who were most at risk were actually B-plus students. Rich's tips on taking advantage of the late bloomer philosophy is the task of a late bloomer is to get off the conventional path and become an explorer. I can definitely attest to the fruit of getting off the conventional path and exploring and tapping into your innate curiosity. There's no better decade than your 20s to take risks. I can actually, one of the, the most often questions that I receive is what would you say to your younger self or your, what would you tell to your 20-year-old self? And what I, what I would say to that person, to the 20-year-old Mike, is take risks, be brave, be willing to fail, now is the time. Another tip that Rich offers is self-doubt isn't something to run away from. It's actually something to embrace because it means that you are in the process, you're engaged, you're aware, you're attuned. But the thing is to actually allow your self-doubt to propel you, not hold you back. And another tip that Rich offers is be prepared to find new friends and move to a different place if your current environment isn't serving you. One of Rich's key teachings is that finding your purpose is everything. And as he says, when you feel pulled, when people feel pulled, they grow in amazing ways and they surprise you. There is so much rich fruit inside of this conversation about late bloomers and Rich's story and my story and your story. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, embrace for impact. Rich, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Very excited to have you. We were actually introduced a while ago by Cameron Harold, and I'm so glad that we never actually were able to connect at that point because it was destined to be that we both would be publishing game-changing books around the same time and have the opportunity to connect as your book, Late Bloomers, came out just recently, and my book came out recently, Master the Key. Both kind of a crossover of the same thing told 
addressed differently. So I'm, ex- I'm, I'm incredibly excited to chat with you. Well, that's great, Mike. And uh, we're mutual fans of Cameron Harold. So Cameron, if you uh, happen to be listening to this podcast at some point, uh, you've got two fans here. <laughs> you know, as we were just talking about, one of the reasons why we are here is to talk about your book, Late Bloomers. And there is something happening specifically in Western civilization right now around the idea of purpose and meaning and potential. And these aren't necessarily questions that are new. In fact, I think that we've, we all experience four fundamental questions. Every age of humanity has wondered who they are, what their gifts are, what they're supposed to do with them, and who they're supposed to do things with in their life. And we're going to talk about all that and more. But before we get into late bloomers, I always like to kind of tap into the origin story a little bit of, of who you are, who the guest is. And so I would love to, to learn who your childhood hero was. My childhood hero was, well, I was born and raised in Bismarck, North Dakota. And my dad was a public school athletic director. So my heroes were always from the world of sports. And I can't, really, can't remember any specific heroes I had as a young child. But in adolescence, I really developed an interest in middle and long distance running, probably because I was not good in traditional sports. I tried them all. I was too small and slow and skinny for football. I made the last spot on the freshman and sophomore basketball team, but I, I, I was so far down that I didn't even get to practice that much. I was, you know, 11th, 12th, 13th player. And when you're 11th, 12th, 13th player, you don't even get to do five on five practice. And baseball, I wasn't much good either, but I discovered as a skinny kid that I could run. And so my heroes were mainly from the world of track and field. I remember, uh, I'm dating myself here, but when I was in junior high school, the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City really catalyzed my interest in track. And then there was a flowering of distance running in the United States in the 70s that produced different kinds of distance runners, people like Steve Prefontaine and and Frank Shorter, and they were rebels. Not on they were different than the than the distance runners from the 1960s. People like Jim Ryan and Billy Mills with their crew cut haircuts. They looked like astronauts, right? They looked like people in the Apollo and Gemini programs. And they there was this back then. There was this sort of fit American icon that the astronauts and, and athletes of that generation protect projected. And then all of a sudden in the 70s, you had these long hair. Um, wild runners like Prefontaine and and Shorter. So, of course, I like those guys and re- really related to those guys. And and uh, we we always felt we were the hippies of the sports movement back then. That it was, um, you know, it took some courage to go out and run long distances on the road and the rednecks would, and their pickup trucks to try to run you down. But running, my heroes were people like Shorter and Prefontaine, particularly Shorter, won the 1972 Olympic marathon because he was very articulate. He was from Yale. He just, I thought he had it all. He didn't really have the bravado that Steve Prefontaine did. Prefontaine uh, was like the James Dean of the running scene back then, just a tremendously charismatic guy with his chest puffed out and so those are uh, those are my heroes in part because they were they were different. They were my heroes. They weren't the heroes I was supposed to have. And we had a coach. We were the state champions across country and track. And we had a coach that let us grow our hair as long as we wanted. It was quite a radical statement in North Dakota back in the early seventies. So how does it's interesting, you know? So based on everything you just said, your your dad was an athletic director, right? Is that yeah. uh, at at uh, at a high school or college? What I'm, well, high school? Uh, this public school system okay. in North Dakota. So the high schools and the junior highs. And- so, so your dad's an athletic director. You're in love with track and field and and watching running. So if we fast forward to where you are today, how's it? How does a skinny kid from North Dakota make it to Stanford, then end up a dishwasher and a security guard, and ultimately the publisher of Forbes? 
Like, I mean, fill in some of those blanks for us. Okay. Well, in high school, I was a good but not great runner. I ran in the state finals. I made the fast heat and finished about second to last. So that kind of tells you uh, how good I was in running in North Dakota. It wasn't, you know, it's a small state. Went to my local junior college and got better as a runner, got better as a student. But when I say better, I only went from B's to B pluses, which basically meant I got A's in the easy courses and B's in the hard courses. And if it was truly a hard course, like organic chemistry after the first practice test, which I'd inevitably flunk, I'd, I'd drop, drop the course. I got, I transferred to Stanford. Now, how did I pull that off? Well, uh, back in the day, Stanford had a 25% admissions rate, unlike the 3% it does today. It was a regionally excellent and up and coming university, but not the world class institution it's perceived to be today. And just a combination, you know, I was from an obscure state. They like to fill out the, have a push pin on every, every state on the map. And, uh, and I was good enough as a runner. I was captain of my cross country team. I ran in the junior college indoor nationals and track that I was good enough that the coach saw my application and thought that I might be a contributor to the team as a, as somebody far down on the roster, but nevertheless a contributor. Combination of all those factors got me into Stanford. I didn't, uh, you know, if anybody is jealous hearing about my lucky break of getting into Stanford, um, just hold on a second because I, I will tell you that justice prevailed and I absolutely was over my head and squandered the opportunity. I took the easiest classes available, graduated with the minimum number of units. And as a result, uh, I'm in my mid 20s, and my roommates who were serious students are doing serious things like finishing law school. One was working on a secret government project we later learned was the space shuttle. And I oh, could no. hold a job no greater than a security guard, dishwasher, and temp typist. And that was me at 25. Hmm. You know, one, one of the things that I, when I was reading your book, I, may, I actually wrote, I, I meant, to, I left my copy of your book at my house, but I wrote, I, I was reading that story in your book about how the, the coach from, from Stanford read or overestimated or misinterpreted your running time and thought you could run 10% faster or something like that along those lines than, than you could or th than you had. And I wrote down in, in the footnote of the book, the word chance, because I had recently started thinking about the different times in life and ways that chance shows up. Are you familiar with Dr. Albert Bandura? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, the whole chapter on uh, in Late Bloomers about self-doubt. Right. To his theories on self-efficacy yes. and why self-doubt doesn't have to stop us. In fact, I advocate embracing self-doubt because self-doubt is always, it's an annoying package that delivers useful information. Mm -hmm. culture way that we just need to bull our way past self-doubt and take on this affected confidence, you know, might get us through a pinch, but as a long-term strategy, we're much better off learning how to reconcile ourselves with self-doubt and then using Bandura's self-efficacy principles move forward. But yes. I, interrupt, I interrupted you, Mike. Oh, well, we're, we're going to talk about self-doubt. I actually have that on my list of questions because I love how you framed it. But he also wrote a, a journal article uh, on on the psychology of chance, chance encounters, and and that that was one of them, right? Like th that was that that fact that there was this little glitch, if you will, in your in your in how the coach had interpreted your score, your times gave you a chance, and you took advantage of it. You got there, but then you also squandered it. So. Uh, as you were saying, so continue that story. Yeah, well, then there's part there's part three to that. <laughs> um, part three to that is that while I was squandering my opportunities to Stanford, I, I I found out that I just couldn't pay uh, attention to studies at all. I don't think I had ADHD or anything like that. I just looked at the material, knew it was over my head, and and would give up after about fifteen minutes, and I would head to the to the stacks in the library where there were hard bound copies of, of magazines. Now, my favorite magazine in, in high school was Sports Illustrated. I always looked forward to Fridays 
when it was delivered and I would devour it. And then later track and field news and, and uh, runner's world and those publications too. So I would spend when I was supposed to be studying for my classes, I instead was reading back issues of sports illustrated. And I really mean backward and forward every issue since its inception year in 1954. And, um, Sports Illustrated endeared me for many reasons. The writing was great, but but its first athlete of the year in 1954 was Roger Bannister, who'd broken the mm-hmm. four-minute mile earlier that year. Well, all of that, you talk about chance. First, the lucky break that I, I got into Stanford, but then I squandered it, and it looked like I'd really blown it uh, in my mid-20s when I was incapable of holding a job greater than security guard, temp typist, and dishwasher. And yet all that reading I was doing of Sports Illustrated, the part three of the story <laughs> is the is how I was able to, when a friend of mine and I started what became Silicon Valley's acknowledged first business magazine, the first one that looked at technology startups, venture capital, going public, all of that, that part that has made the Silicon Valley ecology what it is. And my friend was in charge of raising the money and and selling the ads. And I was in charge of designing the magazine and editing the magazine. I had this inspiration. And the inspiration was, well, you know, business is a competitive sport, really. And, And yet, when you look at business magazines and read them, they seem boring. Now, I say that I hadn't discovered Forbes, which was a non-boring business publications, but the one I'd seen in the local business press, it was just boring, boring, boring. And I thought, what if what if we brought a kind of Sports Illustrated vitality to a business magazine? I mean, punchy headlines and punching people in the face when they deserved it, and 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 making fun of people when they deserved it, delivering really valuable uh, information and news also. And that's how I said about it within after issue number one, Kleiner Perkins, the big venture capital firm threatened to sue us for the audacity of making fun of them. Their firm, their fund number three was underwater and, and we got wind of that. We got the, the term sheets and all the kind of stuff and, and you know, had them nailed. And they were uh, every day, Brooke Byers, uh, one of the name partners threatened to sue us, but they didn't, of course. But it, it, it validated, it got everybody's attention, this new-looking publication that sounded different than any business or technology magazine. And pretty soon, high-level CEOs decided it was better off if they gave long interviews with us than to be on the blunt end of our, our punching. And within a couple of years, Bill Gates gave me four hours of interviews, something that he wasn't giving Fortune and Forbes. And this got the attention of everybody in the magazine industry. And Forbes, uh, Steve Forbes came out to Silicon Valley with the idea of buying us, but he hired me instead. So I went from being a security guard to reporting directly to Steve Forbes 10 years later because I had uh, I brought this novel way of, um, of creating a magazine due to the fact that I was, quote unquote, wasting my time in the library stacks. But of course, I wasn't wasting it at all. I was learning. And that's so. That's that's my story of how I got into Forbes um, for, after being a security guard at age twenty-five. So, what was the what was the bridge? Who who gave you the chance at Forbes? Well, it was Steve. Oh wow! Steve, okay, Steve Forbes. I mean, Steve Forbes. I, I reported to the boss. Okay. From the get-go. He was okay. the one that took an interest in us because he saw that we were getting these. You know, I was getting long interviews with people like Bill Gates. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. word was getting out in the in the legacy magazine industry, and Steve liked our attitude, and he liked our embrace of, of free enterprise and and uh, all of those things, and thought we would be kindred spirits. And he and he, he and the CFO and the publisher of Forbes came out to visit us. Mm. So it was certainly no small amount of good luck figured into that. But on the other hand. The idea of synthesizing the the sound and the feeling and the attitude of a sports magazine and applying it to a business and technology magazine was it was a novel idea and it paid off. And you didn't wait around for luck, 
right? You, you were working the whole time. You were just pursuing what you, what interested you, what, what was driving you, something that was unique and special and different. And, and that gave, that breathed life into your potential. Yeah, it did. Now, I had no formal background in journalism, and I, 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 I observed. I observed this only after I got to work at Forbes. There were so many uh, bitter journalists, not just in the industry, um, not at Forbes, but people who, because their progress was so slow, because they'd taken the predictable routes, and because they'd taken the predictable routes, they were low-level researchers for a couple of years, and then they were low-level this, and then maybe low, mid-level this, and then mid, mid-level this, and then, you know, and yawn, yawn, yawn. And then by the time uh, they were in the position to have any kind of um, meaningful position at the publication, they were sort of getting long in the tooth. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, I didn't plan on it, but I, I realized that if you if you're fall behind, as I did in my 20s, and you're a late bloomer, you know, what, what you need to do is take the unconventional path. Because if you take the conventional path and you're already behind, you, you'll never catch up to your peers who are early bloomers taking their conventional path. So the task of a late bloomer in whatever field that they are is to get off the, the conventional path and become a, an explorer and a discoverer. Because face it, you didn't excel on the conventional path. You fell behind. Mm-hmm. on the conventional path for any number of reasons, you know, it, uh, mental and physical immaturity, uh, non-standard learning styles. I mean, you name it, the, the conventional path was not built for you. So mm-hmm. if you perceive yourself as a, as a potential late bloomer, then you have the obligation, and it's not optional, of then going finding your own path. 100%. And I, I think that there's this, another note I had made in the book, is this problem with the sense of duty that we have as a, as a culture. Like that we have to follow this you know, prescribed path, that we have to do things that our parents said that we ha- follow our parents' way, so to speak. You know? and, and I think that we're in this point in history where there's so much disruption happening. Industries are changing at a pace that we can't even keep up with. That people are finding themselves still stuck. They they did they followed the early achievement advice, right? They they did the, the path. They got the college degree. Now they have you know mountains of debt, and their jobs are being automated away. And and so what what does someone like that do? How, what's the next step for someone who's followed that path? They've done the early achievement. They didn't necessarily thrive like some of their contrarian friends, like you know Steve Jobs or those types of people, maybe. But they—they've nevertheless they have all of these skills and abilities. But now with new technology, artificial intelligence, all of that stuff, their their jobs and their the way that they earn their quote unquote living is threatened. What do they do to recapture their potential? Well, they have to go out and discover discover themselves, and uh, at, at the same time, they have the burden, unless their parents are supporting them, of, of making sure they don't starve to death while they do that. Mm-hmm. But it's worth taking risks in your twenties. You simply have to. There is no better decade in your life than your twenties. Oh, than taking risks, you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to find out. You see. Everybody has the potential, I believe, to find their fulfillment, to find their to to find that magical place where they're able to put together their native gifts, their deepest passions, and their sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. And when all three of those are in alignment, suddenly you find yourself being pulled, not pushed. Mm -hmm. The sense of duty that you talked about is is real and it it leads to kids feeling pushed close to where i live i live in los altos california the neighboring town is palo alto and palo alto had an epidemic of suicides and and kids treated for suicidal thoughts in the 2014 and 2015 school year and by all measures you know these are affluent kids these are 
kids with uh, professionally educated parents who are aspirational themselves, as well as being aspirational for their kids. And a writer from Atlantic Monthly came out and uh, investigated this story and discovered that that the kids that were in real danger, including uh, some of the ones that committed suicide, were the B-plus students, were feeling ashamed of themselves because they were B-plus students. Now, how tragic is that? But the, one of them left, uh, had been posting on social media that he was tired of getting up at 3.30 in the morning to keep up with his advanced placement courses. Now, here was a kid who had a sense of duty, too much, I would say, and he was pushed. He allowed himself to be pushed. And what we really seek, Mike, is to be pulled. Mm-hmm. See, that's what happens when we find that intersection of our native gifts that may have gone completely undiscovered in school. Um, I like to say as an old track and field guy, imagine you're the best potential marathoner in the world. and But there's going to be a test to measure how well you're doing. And, and you're going to be tracked for that. And your, your sense of self-esteem is going to be based on how well you do on this test. But the test is not how well you do in the marathon. The test is how far you throw the shot put. Mm-hmm. Now, what good marathon runner is going to be competitive in the shot put? The marathon runners are cadaverously skinny. You know, their <laughs> gifts are elsewhere. So what you want to find is your native gifts, your passions, and your purpose. And the purpose is what gives your passions something deeper, uh, some kind of resonance and enduring quality so that you'd be willing to sacrifice for your passions and, and without even feeling necessarily sacrificial. Mm-hmm. What happens when people feel pulled, they grow in amazing ways and they surprise you. For instance, I'm, a, I'm, I'm pretty far along the introvert scale on, on a scale of introvert to extrovert. You know, I give a lot of speeches and, and stuff like that, but really, you know, I'm comfortable reading books and, and things like that. And the idea, I remember in high school being terrified whenever, um, you know, when I was in band or anything like that, we had a fundraiser and I had to, you know, ask people for money or, or something like that. And that just that terrified me. The idea, uh, and I tried a couple of sales jobs, you know, after college and they didn't work at all. I didn't write about them. It was embarrassing because I was simply too afraid to ask, you know, to make a sale. And so I've never thought of myself as a salesperson when I was pushed. Mm -hmm. I'm Mm -hmm. pulled and suddenly it's my project. I can sell the crap out of anything, but only when it's my project. And you find that introverts or people never thought they could sell well when they're feeling pulled toward their destiny because they have that alignment of their talents, their passions, and their purpose. Mm-hmm. They become people that they weren't. They grow in amazing ways. Passive people become lions of courage. Introverts become salespeople. That's why it's so valuable. You know, if I can plant one idea in the heads of, of, of that uh, hypothetical person, of which there are many, you know, they're in their 20s and they're, they've got college debt and all of that, and they're worried about their, their future is you've got to go on this path of discovery and and wind up someplace where you feel pulled. There's some destiny out there. Oprah Winfrey calls it, says everyone has a supreme destiny. Uh, I believe that. And, you know, it's your job. It's maybe not fair that you're forced to do this in the way that some early bloomers weren't. Mm -hmm. But you've got to go out and find it. And you know you found it when you feel pulled. Here we are, another week into the birth of my first book, Master the Key, a story to free your potential, find meaning, and live life on purpose. And it continues to make waves and impact the lives of those who are engaging with its message. Here is the most recent review coming in hot from Ryan O'Hara. Master the Key was inspiring, challenging, full of wisdom, and really hard to put down. A lot of books promise the possibility of a new way of looking at life, but this one delivered. Over a few short days, it caused me to step back and consider what and reconsider what's most important to me and what might need to change for me to further align my life along with those priorities. I highly recommend this book to anyone 
eager to truly become the person they were created to be. Ryan, thank you so much. I'm so honored and humbled by your feedback and your support and encouragement, my friend. If you have not picked up a copy or two or a bazillion of Master the Key to pass out to all of your friends and family, hit pause, head over to Amazon, head to the show notes of this episode and buy yourself a copy of Master the Key, a story to free your potential, find meaning and live life on purpose. And I love that you brought up the word passion. And I love that you mentioned the willingness to sacrifice because I've been talking for the last three, four years to people about the word, that word, passion, because it is the most misused word in the entrepreneurial world. Follow your passion, right? Nobody knows what they're passionate about because nobody's done the work to identify what they're willing to suffer for. Which That's is what right. and if it's over you, people can feel passionate about a series they're watching on HBO, you know, right? Or, or a new uh, a new burrito shop, or something. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. So the word is the word is overused. It gets bandied about in the very. It, it does no good to tell somebody to go out and find your passion unless you marry it with purpose, and right. then, it becomes, then it becomes a mission, and mm-hmm. a mission is just a whole qualitatively different level than than passion. And and that's also one of the reasons why I think that the whole, you know, quit your day job, go all in, burn the boats idea is bad advice until you know what those things are, until you know what you're willing to sacrifice for and and what your and how that aligns with your purpose, what you're here to facilitate. Yeah, well, of course it is. You know, uh this is an old example, but it's it's sort of the iconic example from from my generation, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs starting Apple. Now, Steve Wozniak didn't give up his job at Hewlett Packard to go all in on Apple. Jobs kind of had to pull him <laughs> reluctantly, even though so so Woz was holding a holding down a job at HP and then spending his evenings and weekends tinkering on what became the Apple One and then the Apple Two, and you know. That was the way to do it. And that's why I say it's so important to do that in your 20s, because imagine if Waz at that time had been married and had a mortgage and kids and all, all of that. Then then he would have had to make a choice between HP or Apple, and he probably would have chosen to stay at HP because he had financial responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so you have to be willing to investigate things in the evening and on on the weekends. That means you have to be can't be someone who becomes uh, addicted to that n- nightly drinking of beer or or getting high or or just hanging out with your friends i mean you have to then you won't get it done you really mm-hmm. have to decide whether you want to bloom or not and going on that path of discovery while you're still holding down a job isn't easy but if there's a time to do it it's in the 20s one of the things that i i've been i've used myself and and I've been teaching to others is what I've what someone taught to me, and now I call the 168 hour method, is just looking at your seven day week every week, and and budgeting that 168 hours that each and every one of us has, right? And really analyzing and being honest with how you're spending your time, because because most people, you know, we sleep 55 hours a week or so. That leaves 110 odd hours, you know, to left to do something with, right? Then you got to work. Let's say you're Steve Wozniak and you got, let's say you're working 40 hours at HP, right? That's, you know, 60 hours around there of, of extra stuff. Let's say you have a family, you know, you, you can dedicate time to yourself, to your family and to your dream and vision projects. All, I, I think if you, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, if you are really honest with your time and with how you're spending it, I think we can do 10 times more than we think we're capable of. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. I always thought, you know, our friend Cameron Harold likes to tell the story of, um, of Zappos. And Zappos senior executives will, will meet people coming into Las Vegas who are applying for jobs in, in, in their Las Vegas facility. Uh, but they look like bus drivers and guides. And they like the Zappos people. It's a little bit sneaky 
but it works. It's legal. Uh, they're listening to the conversations mm-hmm. that people are having. And, and they, um, uh, that right away, they're assigning negative points if you're talking about your favorite TV show and mm. things like that. They don't think you're serious. It's mm. one of the questions they use, actually, when they interview you. What's your favorite TV show? The answer is, I'm not supposed to have one. You know, <laughs> many other, you know, I'm doing too many things. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah, is that fair? No. Uh, well, yeah, it is fair, but but it may not seem fair if you're on the blunt end of that. But know that you know a pretty high performing entrepreneur and his company think that way. And if you want to participate in that world, you need to train yourself to think that way too. Now, earlier in our conversation, we were talking about the idea of self doubt as being a superpower, and I'd like to talk about that. But I'd also like to do it in the light of understanding our giftedness. Because I think that one of the challenges, and in my book, one of the one of the characters teaches the lesson that our chain, our our gifts, our giftedness, has been chained to the pursuit of status and achievement, and and the so in other words, outcomes. And so, unless we detach the two, we we will oftentimes feel like our gifts aren't valuable or what our native abilities are don't have anything to offer unless they produce some sort of outcome that's quote unquote valued in the world and i'd love for you to kind of talk weave that into the idea of of using our self doubt to empower our ability to discover what we're really capable of well sure i started out with the premise in the book that people who are not the these these stellar early achievers probably have a greater degree of self-doubt than those who are those early achievers. But that self-doubt isn't something to run away from. Self-doubt is something to embrace. Now, why would anyone want to do that? I mean, self-doubt, it's like a cloud of panic always descending on you when you least want it. You know, right before a job interview, right before a presentation, right before any kind of high pressure moment, here it comes. But what self-doubt does, it's, you know, we have self-doubt for evolutionary reasons. People with no self-doubt have perished. People who just cross the raging river without considering the consequences uh, of trying to get food under those circumstances, they, they perished. And the ones who waited it out. Uh, because they had doubts about crossing the raging river at, at, at that particular time when it was really raging, uh, are, the, are the people who survived. So self-doubt has been, it's a gift. Uh, it, it's part of our survival. But when it shows up in our lives, we don't want it at all. And particularly for late bloomers, it reminds us maybe of, of our standing in life compared to the early achievers. So how should we go about it? Now, pop psychology says throw our shoulders back, stand up straight, uh, listen to a, you know five minutes of inspirational uh, uh, rah-rah stuff. And, and I don't deny that that can be effective, but I don't think it's a long-run strategy. I think it's spice. I think it can get you through in a pinch. Uh, mm-hmm. We all like to hear the coaches' inspiring words, and we all like the inspiring lines we see from movies, but this is a day-to-day strategy. If you don't learn a tactic of dealing with your self-doubt head-on, then uh, you're always going to be reliant on, on, on those shallower forms of inspiration that just may wear out because mm-hmm. you've heard them too many times. So the first thing you need to do when you feel self-doubt, be reassured everybody has it. Even people, you know, great actors, great scientists, great entrepreneurs have their moments of self-doubt. You learn the first thing you need to do is separate your self-doubt from your sense of self-worth. It's a wall. Your self-doubt has nothing to do with your self-worth. It only does if you let it. So don't let it. Don't Mm -hmm. let your self-doubt creep into your head so that it comes out as, oh, you know, oh, poor me again. Uh, Because now you're making a comment on your self-worth rather than self-doubt. If you can do that, and then you can stand back and look at the self-doubt and you say, okay, what is the self-doubt telling me? I got this really valuable thought when I interviewed Carol Dweck, who teaches freshman psychology at Stanford. She wrote a best-selling book a dozen years ago called Mindset. Uh, Satya Nadella, 
my, who's my candidate for the best non-founder CEO in the world, as everybody at Microsoft <clears throat> read mindset. It's all about developing the habits of having a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. So Carol, Dow, Carol Dweck on self-doubt, she said, learn to see it as an annoying friend. Hear what it has to say once, tell it to go sit down, thank it for the, thank it for the information value that it brought, and then tell it to shut up. Well, self-doubt may be telling you that you're not as prepared as you need to be. Self-doubt may be telling you that in this particular project, you need a partner who brings complementary skills, who makes up for your weaknesses so that you can concentrate on your strengths. Self-doubt may be telling you, you know, you're exhausted before you even think about this problem anymore. Make sure you get a good meal and a good night of sleep. Self-doubt can deliver any of that information if we step back and we look at it and don't let the panic that we have when we let it infect our self-worth overtake us. And then there, from there, there are all kinds of tactical advices, pieces of advice that, that, uh, that people can employ. But the main idea is learn to get comfortable with your self-doubt. Never let it infect your self-worth. It's a very valuable strategy to have over the course of your life in addition to maybe those transitory puff yourself up things that, that may, you know, may give you a short-term burst like a turbocharger or a, you know, or a, a five-hour energy, you know, mm-hmm. like that. but you need both. You need, the, you need the long-run strategy and the little burst of confidence. And if you have both, you have a good chance of being able to proceed despite your self-doubt. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you talk about as well is, is the idea of purpose. And I think that a lot of times self-doubt and, and our giftedness gets muddled in with what our purpose might be. And our purpose, our gifts can be expressed or facilitated in a number of different ways. And so the example that I often for, it makes for my own head, the example I use is like this souvenir coffee mug with pens in it that I'm holding up in the, mm-hmm. you know, it's doing something, but not necessarily the right thing. Right. And unless it's me who intentionally put the pens there, right? So it's the same thing with us. It's about did I intentionally put the pens in that cup, right? If we're feeling like we're not who we're supposed to be, we have to do the work ourselves to identify where we're at, why we're there, and what to do about it. Yeah. And in today's society, particularly where you live and where I live, in the San Francisco Bay Area writ large, including Santa Cruz, or if you have rapid algorithmic gifts, you're considered golden. Well, you probably already did very well on your SAT if you had those kind of gifts. You Mm -hmm. probably did very well in school. You probably uh, went to a good college, good business school, good engineering school. You probably got job offers from Google or chances to join startups. And what what do you do if your gifts are outside that? What if they're more creative? What if they're more spatial? And it isn't just young people who, who have second thoughts about their non, uh, non-traditional gifts. Parents. I mean, I, I'll tell you a story. One of, I mentioned that one of my uh, college roommates went off to get a doctorate in divinity and a PhD in uh, clinical psychology. And today he's a clinical psychologist in Pasadena working with families. And often it's a troubled teen that brings the family in to see him. And he he told a story. He said, this has happened more than once and it drives me crazy. It makes me mad, he said. The the family will bring in the troubled teen. Uh, My friend Jeff will will meet with the troubled teen for several hours, talk to him. And he'll discover that the troubled teen often has a gift that is so outside of conventional thinking in Pasadena where everybody is of the professional class and you know, it's an upscale community and, and uh, all the kid parents just want their kids to go to USC and stuff like that. And, and he told the story of how uh, the parents thought the kid was suddenly had, had lost interest in everything and was hanging out with the wrong kid crowd. The truth of it was the kid loved cars. You're, I guess you're not supposed to like cars when you grow up in a place like Pasadena. 
you know, cars are for other people to tinker with. And those the, 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 the wrong people that he was hanging out with were just other kids who like cars. They like turning ranch, wrenches. They like jacking up cars. They like tinkering with the software to extract more horsepower from the engine. They loved cars. And here the kid was ashamed to tell his parents that he loved cars. cars and the parents, as a result, thought that he was just he completely checked out and he was hanging around with somehow dangerous people mm-hmm. and they couldn't and and so they were so far away from uh, understanding their own child and when my friend and they didn't want to get close it turned out that's what drove my friend the psychologist so, so made him so angry because when jeff said to the dad have you thought you know maybe a good summer job instead of going to get another tutor camp to get up his SAT so he can get into USC, you know, maybe he would really thrive getting a job at a Lexus service center. Maybe he would really thrive going to a a professional trade school. By the way, that's not a lifetime commitment. You know, Mm -hmm. he might want to decide to go to college five or 10 years later, or he might, the entrepreneurial bug might bite him and he might decide to build a business around the skilled trades of, of, you know, maintaining and 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 uh, high performance cars and the father just wouldn't hear it at all he said he slapped the table and said my son is going to usc i went to usc that's what we do in this family so you know that to me that 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 how is the kid supposed to have confidence about his different gifts mm-hmm. are hostile to it mm-hmm. yeah you know it, it's <laughs> such <laughs> such an important point i mean you know the the idea, the word confidence means with faith, right? And, and unless we act with faith, we will never live with confidence, right? And and so yeah, we have. By the way, by the way, you just identified why I think it's a real advantage to have faith when it comes to self doubt. Because remember, I talked about how important it is to wall off your self doubt from your self worth. If you have faith, you know you have the faith that your self worth is inherent. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's yes, a, you're not an accident, right? That's a, I think that's a huge advantage. Totally, and in fact, that's the very first thing that that I bring up in my book, which is before you can find your why, you have to believe that you're worthy of one to begin yeah. with. Yeah, which is sort of good. It's the prequel to Simon Sinek's uh, <laughs> you know, uh, on why. Right? Exactly. Totally. That's that's the character in the book is a janitor who's teaching the main character, the protagonist, Steve, who went through a crisis about identity, right? And, and mastering a story and, and finding his why. And the first thing is, is believing that you're worthy of one to begin with. One, one of the things you talked about with that kid is community, right? He had, that, he had that group of people that his parents thought were the wrong crowd, right? That he was hanging out with and tinkering with cars with and learning all kinds of mechanical skills that could totally be a game changer for him in the future. And ultimately, community is the accelerant for growth, right? It's the ultimate accelerant for growth. And throughout your own story, you've been surrounded by a community of friends to this day who have helped accelerate your growth, both professionally, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. Who are some of the the community members in your own life that you're most grateful for? That's a question that actually makes me a little uncomfortable because I, uh, to tell you the truth, I probably don't use my community as a strength as much as possible. I'll go hmm. back to high school when I decided to hang out with the distance runners because it was my gift and my passion where I felt pulled rather than pushed was um, enormously helpful. And these are some of the the best friends that I have in life today, even though we're all dispersed. Getting involved, I got involved in uh, in my late twenties after I had started to bloom, and I, I I was succeeding at my first ever professional job, which was a technical writer at a research institute. And I finally, uh, and I got married, and I, I felt myself coming into my adult life. That she, uh, her friends, and and some of my friends together allowed us to uh, form a club 
And the club, what still exists today, it's called the Churchill Club in Silicon Valley, and it's got 7,500 members and speakers like Satya Nadella, you know, uh, are invited in to speak. And, and it's a great club. And out of that, out of that experience, uh, uh, one of the other guys and I decided, you know, people like to keep up with this, the information that we're imparting at the club not just when we have events. And that led to the genesis of Upside magazine that I talked about. And then I was able to bring forward all my Sports Illustrated learning to apply to the creation of of Upside magazine. So those things build on each other. I've I've got a chapter in Late Bloomers that talks about the importance of repotting. And repotting is really, you know, that uh, the people that you hang out with may not have your best interests in mind. Now, uh, they may be, you know, extreme example would be uh, the kid coming out of poverty who just for protection reasons joins a gang. Well, he's just a cog in the machine. They don't really have his best interest in mind. But more often is the case, and I see it with a lot of 20-year-olds where uh, out of a sense of loneliness, they're hanging out with friends who kind of entertain them and amuse them, but really don't have their best interests in mind. Um, they get high. They, you know, they, they're just not, they're not moving forward. And that, th- those groups are almost the hardest ones to leave because what do you replace it with? Some people have to repot to a different zip code. Um, you know, if you're a really creative, non-conventional person, maybe a sort of a, a um, an upright small Midwestern city is not not for you simply because those kind of non-conventional, more artistic, creative uh, attributes are not as highly rewarded as they are in California. I mean, why does, you know, why does California overcome its high costs, its high taxation, and still produce such astounding economic growth? Because, you know, because it attracts all the kind of people around the world and, and within the United States who felt there was a better place for their unique skills. So we get both unique technical skills, unique creative skills, social tolerance that allows you know, people to go out and make mistakes and live unconventional lives. And you get a lot of weirdness, but you get a lot of apples <laughs> and Googles and Facebooks as well. Yes, I live in Santa Cruz and there's bumper stickers in Santa Cruz that say keep Santa Cruz weird. Yeah, Austin, yeah, Austin, same thing. You know, there are a lot a lot of people in Austin worry about Austin, you know, getting too big for its britches now and losing its sense of soul. Well, I, I think that Santa Cruz has become a little too weird of late, but you know, we can temp- we can temper the weirdness a little bit. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can go out, uh, you can go out and hang out at one of our two favorite churches that we talked about before. So yeah, totally, totally. You know, I actually, um, it's funny you brought the Churchill Club. I didn't actually realize that you were one of the creators of that because when I was in college, I was I had looked that up as and, and tried to go attend one of the talks. I think it was at the Capitol Club at the time, or or something like that, or the talk was in in the Silicon Valley. But that's cool. That's a really cool loop that you just closed there. That's cool. I always conclude with the same three questions for every single guest. And and before we do that, I want to make sure that everybody can go to Amazon or to wherever they buy books and pick up a copy of Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement, which is a phenomenal, insightful read, very important for this time in history, I think. That we're in, whether you are in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, there is plenty of opportunity and room for us to still do great things with wherever we are in life. So I want to make sure is is it best place to send people to go on Amazon to do that or any place else? Amazon or uh, you know your local bookstore, independent bookstore, Barnes and Noble. It's it's pretty much. Pretty much everywhere. And you can okay. check out the reviews on Amazon or on Goodreads to see if it aligns with something you might be interested in. Yes, awesome. And uh, is there anywhere else online that people can connect with you, social other or otherwise? Sure. You can go to richcarlgard.com, R I C H K A R L G A A R D.com, or the book's website, but that's going to change. Um, right now, it's latebloomer.com, uh, late bloomer singular, unlike the book, which is late bloomers. One of the reasons we're changing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I get that. Okay, the first of the, th- the final three questions is, if you could pick any skill set 
that you currently possess. So a skill you currently have and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Well, I think I have the skill set based on what I do at Forbes, really uh, being here at the intersection of business and finance from the Forbes world and living in Silicon Valley. I have a pretty good sense of of where the future is going in in the following way that I kind of know what quadrant it's going into. And I would love to have the superpower to really zero in on the right space exactly where it was going to. Because then I'd be an incredible investor and, you know, wise. <laughs> so what quadrant is it going? When I think of superpower, I think of more, you know, when I think of superpower, I would like this, I would like the superpower of being able to slow down time. You ever had that experience, you know, where your response to maybe some little put down or whatever it is, your, your best response came the next day in the shower and you wished you would have said it at the time or oh, totally, yeah. if you're in the dating scene, which I'm not, you always, you know, your best <laughs> lines are always the ones you think of later. Wouldn't it be cool if, if, if suddenly you could slow down time and you were thinking in real time and, and the situation you were engaging in just sort of got very, very slow. You know, who's a master at that? Lou Holtz. Huh? He, uh, I, I was talking with him, and in 2015, their house burned down. They got struck by lightning, and the house burned down. And they were standing on the side of the street, and his wife was weeping because they had lost most of their stuff, including, I think, the part of their house that had all of his Notre Dame memorabilia, or a lot of it anyway. And you know, he looked at his wife and he said, honey, we can be upset for 24 hours and then we need to talk about what's next. <laughs> you know? And I thought that that was really a wonderful, like a powerful way to, to kind of do what you just did was just to, to not, re- not react emotionally, right? Which we all tend to do. Uh, and that, but give yourself the space to respond. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why he's the good coach and motivator uh, that he is. Totally. Okay, the, the next question is, what are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from blooming? It'll get better on its own. Number two would be, I have to fix the whole problem right away. And any kind of lie that makes us feel uh, that, uh, that justifies uh, doing something really stupid or self-destructive. Mm, those are really... Powerful lies. Yeah, totally. Now, the, the final question is, is a two-part question. So the first is 3A is what is your favorite art form? Favorite art form? I'm not a connoisseur, but I always respond to really good architecture. Okay. All right, cool. All right. So it's, it's 100 years from now, and you have left a set of instructions for an architect to build a structure that captures the question, how will you measure your life? What would those instructions say to that architect? What would you want him to or her to use to design this structure that would honor the way that Rich Cargard lived his life. Or aspired to live my life because or aspired. I live my life doesn't always meet up to my own aspirations. But I would say ignore fashion and build for eternity. Build for something that is going to appeal to generations rather than art critics or the current fashion. All you have to do is look at some of that wretched architecture that was put up in the 60s and 70s, the little boxes to realize how bad that looks today and whatever got into people's minds to think that that was cool. Um, but it, it certainly didn't come from building building for eternity. Nobody would have done that. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, that's probably one of the most powerful answers I've, I've ever received for that question. Rich Cargard, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Mike. I'm glad we were finally able to connect and uh, and a great show and, and uh, best wishes on both of our books. 
Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters, we could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact. Impact.